like Steve Jobs with Apple. He's dying of cancer. He's still there. And you yeah. can tell what a person's out of the game and they're just, they're, they're just phoning it in or they're, they're, you know, doing something different and they're finding themselves and they just look different. They appear different. And, you know, they, you have to have something big to keep you there. That's exciting and sexy and it can't be wealth. It never, never in the long term does anything for you. Do you think that's the main fault of people that don't have lasting success is that they actually end up chasing the money when to your point, they should really be chasing not necessarily passion, but something that actually can solve a problem because your wealth is value is correlated to the value that you've provided for the marketplace and, and around the world. And I would imagine when someone's identity is around how much money they make is not going to be something that's going to be lasting, especially if they do end up succeeding. It's not going to be taking them from good to great because once they have a minimum basic of what they need, it's no longer going to fuel them. Yeah, there's diminishing returns, you know, so you start and you start being able to do stuff and you're, oh, wow, this is amazing. But it's not like the next million somehow magically changes. You get to a certain point where it's like giving a loaf of bread to a guy who owns a bakery. That's the analogy I love using. You're like, well, that's that's pointless. It doesn't do anything for me. So, uh, yeah, it has to be connected to passion and it has to be connected to to something that matters. And a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, they, they want the prestige, the fame, the wealth. They want something that justifies themselves or they think will make their lives better. It's a fool's errand. Happiness comes from within. One of the most valuable things I've done in my entire life, uh, I I did last year, I wrote a blog post about it. I went to a silent retreat, uh, December 10th, Mm. the 17th last uh, year. Is this the 10-day Vipassana one? I went to a seven-day one at uh, Shambhala Mountain Center, and it was a mindfulness-based stress reduction style, but very similar to Vipassana. And so you just don't speak. 12 hours a day, just sit down, meditate. Uh, And I also fasted at the same time. So I didn't eat for four days. And then I was also meditating outside in the cold. So every morning I get up around five-ish and go out there in the brutal cold and, you know, just sit down and enjoy that and then go meditate for 12 hours. And it was just (laughs) so deep and rewarding. And, uh, you know, and I was so happy when I came back, you know, I completely dopamine detoxed and got out of all of those things in life. and, And I was able to more clearly think, and that costs nothing. I mean, yeah, you pay to go there, but anybody can do a silent retreat. I mean, you just go out in the forest for a week, you know, you, you know park pass for a national forest. It's not that much. So uh, really you have to find clarity and purpose and happiness from within. And then you have to decide what really matters with the finite time that you have, and then go and embrace that. And you can volunteer or you can build something and you know, just have to decide how committed you are to it. And if you do that, then you, you will converge to a point, I think, where you find uh, an inner peace and, uh, and you think the time is valuable. You know, the trade that you're making is, is valuable. You know, it's kind of funny, our industry, the, the first thing I mentioned, this idea of the redefinition of money, like what is money? It means exchanging an account of store of value. Um, the Bitcoin that El Salvador is buying is the same Bitcoin that I got you know, under a dollar. It's the same concept. It's just now at larger scale. The protocol hasn't materially changed in that period of time. So really we're, we're as a collective whole having this conversation about, well, what is wealth? And, you know, and also how should people live? Uh, the model that we were given with the industrial revolution was you work nine to five, sometimes even longer, at least five days a week for 40 plus years to save up enough to be an old person and maybe live 10 good years before your health fails. And then the rest of it is what it is. And we hope that you've, you've been smart about it. 
and you, you, along the way, maybe you raise some kids and uh, along the way, maybe you go on some vacations, but that that's the lifestyle that we're being told. Meanwhile, technology has grown exponentially. And suddenly we have robotics and massive productivity gains and efficiency gains. But when you look at productivity gains compared to salary, uh, they're not connected. You know, salary's kind of gradually gone up pairing with inflation, but then productivity's gone up by hundreds of percentage points. Uh, and that's, that's why we have many more billionaires today and many of these wealthy companies, but we haven't seen a reflection of that percolating through. So when you reinvent money, you start also taking a step back and asking, well, should we reinvent the notion of the work week? The work-life balance, society in general, the the idea of this is so things like the Venus Project. They call a resource-based economy, and then there's some people talking about the four-day work week. Other people talking about universal basic income. So, a happy. What are your act- thoughts on the four-day work week? I mean, you now run a very big organization, knowing that you know it's we're in a very leveraged world of software and code and all automation. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, well, I think work efficiency is the most important thing, not work quantity. Is, mm. When I lived in Japan, you know, the problem with Japan is like everybody works 60 hours a week, but they only actually really work 20. The other 40, they're just like checked out <laughs> and yeah, they're just appearing yeah. busy. You know, it was like I, I was in Osaka and one of my favorite things to do was ride that first train at six o'clock in the morning uh, on a work day. You know, and you see all these people that partied over the weekend and they have to go to work <laughs> in like two hours. and. It, it, they just look destroyed. And then somehow like three hours later, they're at work and they look sharp and they have their suits on and the eye drops. They look in. sharp. Yeah. yeah. But, but really there's nothing going on in there. It's, it's just empty. Right. Uh, and it's just like appear busy, look, look busy, you know, work hard. So it's not about the quantity. It's about the quality of the work. And that's where you see things like Cal Newport's um, deep workbook. Deep work, um, yeah. yeah. Another example would be the Stephen Kotler's work on flow, you know, these types of things. And people talk around, well, how do you get more efficiency with the hours you do spend? You know, Tim Ferriss is chasing that a lot with what do they call four-hour work week or whatever the hell those books are. But basically, I think that's that's the thing we should look for is how do you create the right work environments and the time management systems so that people can perform at their best and be elite for the time that they're investing in that particular task. And when you actually look at a lot of work days, especially in knowledge work, massive quantity of time is wasted. In pointless meetings, even Google made a video, you know, like, you know, go to YouTube and, you know, type in meetings that don't suck Google. And there's like a whole hour long presentation that Google Ventures put on about how bad meetings can get. And then a lot of knowledge workers would be like, oh my God, I go through that on a, on a regular basis. So it's not really a solution to say, let's go from a five day to a four day work week. It's more of a solution saying, let's talk about work efficiency and let's optimize that. And, and then, you know, uh, would you rather have your employees be hyper-efficient for three days a week or just present for five days a week? These types of things. So the incentives sure. have to be examined and the workflow has to be examined. You know, also everybody's trying to figure out how to work remote now. That's a huge change. I've dealt with that for the last eight years, but COVID for the last two years has forced all these traditionally, you know, in-person businesses to now say, oh, how do we do remote work? And that's a massive transition. You know, mm. people find out maybe they don't like their wife or husband as much as they thought. <laughs> but just finding a quiet room can be incredibly difficult at times. And then that whole yeah. work-life balance gets screwed up because you're at home and you're supposed to be like at home, but you're working from home. So a lot of people overwork and they're in yeah. bed and they're working on their phone. They're here and they don't have those clear demarcations anymore. But, you know, going back to the money, it's, it really forces that conversation of what is the trade there? And how should people live and what should people do? And, uh, you know, how do you 
change that relationship? And should people have to work 40 or 50 years of their lives, the best years of their lives, just so that they can eke out five to 10 years of peace where they don't have to work and be retired? It's an interesting question. Well, what do you think if you were to choose, you know, obviously there are so many functions of, of what blockchain and cryptocurrency has done, but do you feel that, you know, what would you feel is like the biggest thing that cryptocurrency solves for the world? Is it bridging that gap of the wealthiest to making it more fair and equal for people across the world? Or is it something else you feel? Well, you know, it, it does different things for different people, but I'd say if you had to break it down to some categories where it really has changed the conversation, first, uh, this concept of inclusive accountability. So inclusive accountability is your ability to verify something someone tells you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Sean, I, I, I'm an astronaut fighter jet pilot. You know, you're like, okay, yeah, you're a Navy SEAL too, right? So like, what system do you have to be able to check that? Uh, and there's so many things in life from credentials to voting to money where you actually find out that you're actually trusting a third party institution. You're not actually uh, able to verify that. For example, voting systems in the United States, I currently cannot check my vote. So I send my mail-in ballot or I go to the little vote thing and I hope that everything's working well, but I have no ability myself to check that to see if it's been properly recorded the way I thought, and also the integrity of the system as whole. Did more people vote than people registered? That would be a problem. Well, Bitcoin is a great example, Ethereum, Cardano, any of these cryptocurrencies, where you have inclusive accountability for the accounting. If I send you a Bitcoin, you don't trust me. You have a node, you can check it, and you can verify it exists and it hasn't been double spent. So that's called an inclusively accountable system. So we're starting to take a step back as a society and start asking questions like, well, what else can preserve inclusive accountability? Whether it be supply chains, uh, like is the food organic or not? Is it safe or not? Is the water I'm drinking safe or not? These types of things, medical information, credentials, voting information, uh, whatever have you, the land, how do I know you really own the property? These types of things. How can we build- water? Like how would you know, verify the quality of water using cryptocurrency? Well, that's a great example of a hard problem, but it's a very valuable problem to solve. Millions okay. of people in the world don't have clean drinking water. And, you know, even in the United States, we had the whole Flint, Michigan issue. And so, uh, you know, what you would do is you would, you'd have an open system and then you'd have an audit and oversight system that you'd pay for. And those people are verifiable, the auditors, and they uh, put their audit reports down for the drinking water on a regular basis. And then also you understand how much uh, confidence they have in that. Maybe they put Mm -hmm. up a bond and if uh, it turns out the water is contaminated, they lose all their money. Maybe there's criminal uh, uh, capabilities, but the point is that you can put it into a digital commons. And that's the other side of blockchain that makes it fair. It's a trusted bulletin board where you have three great properties, immutability, you have time stamping and auditability. Immutability, when you put things in, you can't roll it back for political reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, so I, this is very common in Africa, a lot of the work that we do, people who control the land registries, if a big company comes in, they'll just go ahead and say, well, it used to belong to Alice, but now we're going to make it belong to Bob because they gave me a bribe, you know, these types of things. Right, and and you, right. can't, you can't detect the tampering with it because it's a centralized office and it's an opaque ledger. With an immutable system, once a record goes in, even if it's an inaccurate or wrong record, that fact is there forever and, and you can't roll it back. Timestamped means you know when it got, went in, the ordering of operations. 
So a lot of cases we were always asking, well, who's on first? You know, who 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 actually did this first? Like publications, who published first? Was it Leibniz or Newton? You know, these types of things. So you have right. timestamps, complete and, transparency, and the yeah. auditability, that property of inclusive accountability, is one of those things. So you can put auditors in, and you can check and see when the last time that water you're drinking has been checked. You can see uh, what the standards were, what process they followed, what agencies vouch for that. And then if it turns out to be contaminated or there's a problem, you could even create self-auditing things. Like, for example, uh, let's say you, you can test the water yourself with a special kit. And if it turns out that there's a contaminant, then what you can do is upload that to the system. And then oh, and if everyone tur- knows. Yeah. Right. And, and everybody right. can see that. So it's a whistleblowing mechanism that you can have as well. And it's a very important for audit and oversight. Right. And that creates a shelling point where, where people basically say, hey, uh, you know, uh, I better be honest because other people can check my work. And, and if I'm dishonest, there's significant consequences to that. Now, contrast mm. that to the existing system, which is opaque, fragmented, siloed, and subject to corruption. You see, so, so the same thing for water it could be used for organic food. It could be used for food supply chains in general. Uh, and blockchain is a digital commons that basically allows you to, to have a trust engine between parties. Mm. So this is what our industry has really done is it started that conversation. And, and now when we talk around solutioning the problem, there's always going to be edge cases you have to go through. But in the process of solving those edge cases, you start creating generic solutions to broader social problems. The sure. same thing that allows you to verify clean drinking water allows you to verify claims about textiles, which are one of the dirtiest industries, by the way. It, it mm. creates all kinds of problems, the dying of textiles, the manufacturing of it. Tons of kids get cancer and other problems. E-waste is another example of that. You know, We buy these phones and we say, oh, they're great. Well, they end up in India in giant landfills. And uh, poor kids go out there, seven years old, eight years old with mercury and arsenic and all kinds of things. And they try to pull gold and other precious metals out and they poison themselves in the process mm. of doing that. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really a terrible humanitarian crisis. Lithium is another example. How do you know your Tesla car you're buying doesn't have lithium that came from Congo that was mined by a 12-year-old? You know, So these are social problems. We tend not to think about them. But when you start building these global systems, you can start building audit oversight, fraud proofs, and, and humanitarian proofs, and you can start holding people accountable and then yeah. tying taxes and consumer preferences uh, accordingly. What are the things that you see in the horizon? Maybe it's not completely available, but we're on the cusp of it using blockchain. What are the things, what are the applications using blockchain and cryptocurrency that is, is in the horizon that excites you the most? Well, I say, you know, algorithmic stable coins are super cool because what you're doing is separating your monetary policy. And actually, I think El Salvador is the first one that's going to have to contend with this. So El Salvador did something mm-hmm. very unique. You know, they, they, they adopted Bitcoin as their national currency, but that only really works as a store of value. It's not a very attractive means of exchange or unit of account. So they kept the dollar. So they actually have a dollarized economy and they use the dollar as a means of exchange and unit of account. So people are still mm-hmm. paid in dollars. There's still a lot of cash floating around. They just made it easy to exchange dollars for Bitcoin and back. So you can store your wealth in Bitcoin because it's deflationary and tends to appreciate over time. And then you can convert it over to a dollar when you want to spend. What if you could take Bitcoin and create a dollar-like stablecoin from Bitcoin, algorithmic stablecoin from that? And it turns out you can do that. We wrote a paper called Jed that shows how to do that. And we're doing it with ADA. uh, And there's a company called Cody that's bringing that to market. 
Well, if it works for one cryptocurrency, it works for all. So you can do it with Ether, you can do it with Bitcoin, these types of things. So nation states are starting to play around with these buy currency economies and give their people the ability to store and preserve wealth and give their people the ability for friction-free, low-cost transactions. And what is the different inflation of like the nation, let's say for El Salvador? Does it, is there a relationship of how well, that impacts? Inflation? Yeah, well, Bitcoin is deflationary. So it gets more valuable right. over time. So, so, so you store your wealth in assets that are deflationary and you get richer, not poorer over time. And then you don't particularly care what the inflation rate is because if the majority of your wealth is in the deflationary asset, you only convert at the time of purchase to that mm-hmm. asset. So maybe it's $20 tomorrow, but it doesn't really impact you because you didn't lose that, uh, that wealth. Uh, when the 20% inflation hits you or something like that. And it's very common in certain economies like Argentina, they have dollars and peso. So they leave their money in dollars and then they convert over to peso and they buy stuff. And, uh, you know, and they don't really care if it goes up 20% or 30%, you know, cause they, they have a, a place to hide their money. Uh, right. So these, these dual monetary systems are super cool and algorithmic stable coins are, are really interesting. They're opening up a broad conversation about regulation control of inflation and transnational standards. Another thing that I think is really cool on the horizon, we're doing this this year, is that uh, we're finally able to do peer-to-peer lending into Africa. I spent eight years of my career, I did a TED Talk in Bermuda in 2014 uh, about this. And hopefully for that anniversary, we'll be able to demonstrate alone with a stablecoin on Cardano done completely peer-to-peer to a blockchain-based identity in Kenya. And we have a partner called Possessia that we're working with, and we're just doing a huge amount of work to try to get it there because it's such a complicated problem. But the long and the short is if you get that done, then in short order, billions of dollars of value will go from the developed world to the developing world because the interest rates are higher. And you know these loans are right now 3% per month. Uh, and what's great about competition is once that happens, the, the interest rate goes down because there's a larger supply of cash and there's more competition and so forth. So eventually you get to those 10 or 15% interest rates. So that's on the horizon. And it's not like 20 years from now or a hypothetical. It's like, it's there. The rails are there. The wallet infrastructure is there. The stable coin infrastructure is there. The cash in cash out is there at under 1% in Kenya. There's uh, companies in the MFI space that are thinking about this and figuring out how to do it. The reputation systems are there for credit scoring and so forth. And it took eight years of work as an industry to kind of build enough infrastructure to get there. But now that that's there, the smart cow effect will happen and everybody will start doing it because they're chasing returns. And that gets me very excited because that that helps us bridge the gap and create that one global economy as opposed to two economies of the haves and the have-nots. Third, I think there's going to be an e-voting revolution uh, very soon. You know, blockchain doesn't solve all the e-voting problems. It's a a necessary but not sufficient condition. Uh, But it's it's going to happen. And I really want democratic systems where I have the ability to verify that my vote was accurately counted. And there's just a huge demand for that in America. There's a huge demand for that, globally speaking, to restore democratic legitimacy. We live in a time where there's a a lot of institutional legitimacy has been destroyed. If people don't believe me, well, just look at it this way. Five years ago, if you were at a bar and there's a guy from the CDC that's sitting right next to you, you'd say, wow, that's the guy that protects me from Ebola. You know, this is the person that saves us from the pandemics. You have a noble and dangerous job, and that's a high honored position. Now there's a lot of people sitting next to the CDC person saying, you're the person injecting my child with cancer poison. And, uh, you know, you're a horrible human being and, and you're, you're a conspiracy against the public. 
So that was like a very prestigious institution. And now it's decayed to a point where it's not. But that's not just the CDC. It's across the board. Uh, the central banks, uh, the Treasury Department, State Department, the Department of Defense. Nobody believes anything anymore. So we need to restore trust in institutions because we need institutions to deal with complexity. You create institutions to manage complexity. Think of a hospital. You can always go to your doctor, but if you want surgery, you, uh, you're, you're, you're deathly ill and you need an ICU, you need something like a hospital to protect you and, and help you. But if the, you, you don't trust hospitals, then your only alternative is like to visit your witch doctor. I mean, you die. You can't do surgery. You can't do complex things. So you need institutions for complexity. And those institutions are only as good as the faith people have in them uh, and the trust people have in them. So blockchain technology, the, the conversation around how do we utilize that to restore trust and faith and rebuild our institutions in a way there's an unlimited demand for that. On the left, they talk a lot about systemic racism and all this stuff. Well, if, if you want to resolve that, you need to rebuild the institutions. Uh, well, how do you do that? Well, blockchain technology can actually give you objective because it treats everybody the same, regardless of their race or gender or whatever. On the right, a lot of people say, well, institutions are controlled by uh, oligarchs and plutocrats and powerful silent interests that basically suck all the money out and they screw us and deplatform people and so forth. And there's some truth to that too. So if you rebuild your institutions with blockchain technology, the rich have equal say and access to the poor for the first time ever. So those institutions are intrinsically fair and intrinsically transparent, and they can always move in the direction of more verification, more auditing, more oversight. And the cost of audit and oversight and transparency goes down, which means you can do it on a cell phone, you know, and grandma can do it and so forth. So I think that's the other third thing, you know, so the three things I'm most looking forward to, you know, the, the algorithmic stable coins and the, the reinvention of money that's happening real time at the nation state level, finally. Uh, second, the, the economic identity component and microfinance and the fact that that's happening this year and that's so exciting. And that third thing of that, that global conversation of how do we improve institutions in a way that makes them fair uh, for everybody and uh, get, restores their credibility and trust. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, in terms of the institutions, I mean, it's, it's finding that, I mean, I guess how much of it is the fact that we have lost faith in these institutions that now information is a little bit more exposed and people are finding out more things that these institutions have always been doing, but are now just being exposed. Do you feel that blockchain in some ways will just expose more of that and end yeah. up actually detrusting institutions? Because there's probably some sketchy stuff going on around these, you know, behind the walls and blockchain might expose that even yeah. more. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about social media. And uh, and actually, that's why censorship in social media is happening, because social media is being used to expose real-time lies are occurring. And we used to just accept those lies as a consequence of doing business. Uh, but now we actually can see them, feel them, touch them. And there's a huge wave of, of censorship occurring and deplatforming occurring. Uh, and now blockchain is coming in as an alternative. And if that censorship and deplatforming continues... Uh, then it's going to drive millions, eventually billions of people into alternative decentralized systems that can't censor you and they can't lie. And in which case you can use them for whistleblowing, calling truth to power, investigative journalism, basically ACE, freedom of association, commerce and expression. That's going to happen. Uh, you know, and th there are major events and minor events, minor events. Every time somebody gets a, 
COVID Chiron on their Facebook profile or they get their account suspended. That's a minor event. Major events are like what's happening to Joe Rogan. Uh, and, and, yeah. you know, these things really impact things. And at some point, people do crazy things and they deplatform the wrong people. And it drives millions, if not tens of millions of people to alternative systems. And you don't, you, you only get to do that a few times before you wake up and there's 100 million people or 200 million people using a truly decentralized system, in which case that's enough to propagate any message. You've reached a mm-hmm. critical mass, a critical velocity there. So I think it's inevitable, uh, you know, information wants to be free. People want to be free. And also the truth always gets out one way or the other. You can't lie to people forever. Uh, So blockchain technology is a necessary tool, in my view, to preserve that and get us through this. Otherwise, what will happen is that social credit will come, this dystopian stuff will come, and a small group of people will basically be the truth police. And it's, it's like 1984 on steroids. You know, we, we already lived this. We saw it with the Stasi in East Germany. They got so crazy. They, uh, they would actually collect scent samples on people. They actually knew what you smelled like. I mean, if you want, you want to go down that rabbit hole, just Google Stasi scent samples, East Germany, and click images and see the jars uh, that oh people have. It's one of the craziest things to think a society would get so paranoid and so capable of spying that they would know that level of detail uh, you know, about you. Uh, and that was with and they would hold them in jars. Like how yeah, would they jars. store that? It just yeah, they smells these, of these jars with like little things. on. It's the craziest fucking thing. I mean, these, oh these people God. were, these people were hardcore. I mean, German efficiency with Russian police state mentality. I mean, that's like the worst, <laughs> the worst of all worlds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and it wasn't unique to them. I mean, there's plenty of dystopian regimes. So take modern technology and that's the direction we can go. And that's the default yeah. state of affairs because it preserves power for the incumbents. So blockchain mm. is basically saying, hey, let's do things a little differently uh, and let's think a little differently. And, and, and what you're selling there is freedom, you know, mm. and, uh, and it's very enticing. I'm curious to know, Charles, like, you know, going into emerging markets like Kenya and, you know, particularly in Africa, where the culture and the way they work and the way they communicate is completely different from what you're used to. I mean, how do you even go about approaching an emerging market like that? You know, what's like the initial approach? I know you've been at it for multiple years now, but starting out, I mean, what were some of the most difficult parts of that journey when you, when you first entered into that market? And why did you guys choose to go after Africa? Well, if you can change Africa, you can change anywhere in the world. And the, the other thing is that's where the appetite is. If you look at all the demographics, uh, you know, it's the perfect storm. First, uh, like Ethiopia, 70% of the population's at or under the age of 30, and they're digital natives. So you're saying, like, who am I selling cryptocurrencies to, grandma or grandson? And, and so probably should go after the young kids and youngest continent in the world is Africa. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's one dynamic that really makes it attractive. Second, you don't have to explain to an African the need for diversity of money. I, I mean, a lot of people, they see Zimbabwe and all these other economies, the, the, the monetary policy has gone to hell. And that's why M-Pesa and all these other things like spread like wildfire. So this idea of transnational monetary competition, it's, it's a natively accessible and understandable concept. And you don't have to argue, well, uh, we're better than the yen or better than the yuan or better than the dollar or better than euro. It's like it's already a demand and an appetite mm. for that. Uh, and third, they're in the market for new systems. All these young people are getting in power. They're getting rid of the old and they're saying, let's change everything. And they're going from paper-based to digital systems. And for the first time ever, they're developing preferences. 
So right now there's no incumbent voting system or IT system or other things that you have to preserve and protect. And there's trillions of dollars of incumbent wealth behind it. In the United States, there is. In Europe, there is. In China, there is. So when you go there, you have to go to war with Goldman Sachs. You have to go to war with all these very powerful incumbents that can right. throw you in jail or do all kinds of things. In Africa, you go there, it's like, we want this. So there's a demand uh, and there's the right meeting of demographic and there's the right investment. China's already put a trillion dollars into the African continent in the last 20 years. And a lot of people are investing And the fastest growing GDPs are African nations. It's kind of like getting into China in the 1970s or 1980s. Everybody was starting to realize that there was something here and they experienced exponential growth. So you don't go to where the puck is, you go to where the puck will be. And I say, okay, by 2050, Africa is going to be one of the wealthiest continents in the world and fastest growing wow. continents in the world. So we get crypto in there, that becomes the standard DNA. And then suddenly the entire continent has rule of law, inclusive accountability, and the most efficient financial system in the world. And then America has to make a decision. Do we want to compete or not? And if we don't compete, we go into a depression. So there'll then be huge demand in the United States to adopt cryptocurrencies. Otherwise, I have to convince Joe Biden. I have <laughs> I to go convince that. the Senate and Congress. <laughs> I have to go convince Janet Yellen. It's like, you're not going to yeah. happen. There's right, arrogance right. there. There's, there's, there's momentum there. They're, they're in a different yeah. mindset and direction. So it's easier to go where you're wanted and build yeah. something there. And it's just good old-fashioned business. And there's super hard problems to solve, infrastructure problems to solve, corruption problems to solve. We went to Ethiopia for four years. We thought this is going to be the, the, the success story of Africa. They fell into a civil war while we were there. Mm -hmm. And we're still deploying a 5 million person identity system uh, during uh, that conflict. It's still getting done. And so there's a, there's a grit and a resolve and a resilience amongst the people we have. And uh, there's a passion amongst it. And also, it's just a fun place to be. I love Africa. I was just there uh, last year. We went to six countries, South wow. Africa, Zanzibar, Burundi, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Egypt, all in, the, all in one trip. And you know, it was just so incredible meeting the diversity of people, languages, cultures. Uh, it, it truly is an amazing place, uh, you know, and they're just incredibly different place. Like North Africa is totally different from South Africa, totally different from Eastern Africa, from Central Africa. Uh, and you meet incredible people along the way who are just really brilliant, really capable, and they care and they want to change things. They want to see people's lives better. And, and there's a lot of optimism about that. You know, I'm very tired of dealing with cynicism in California. It's so cynical. Oh, they'll never let you do that. Oh, you can't do this. It's like, I don't have fucking time in life for cynical people. If you think the whole world is, is over and the, you can never change anything and it's all decline, go to a cave and die. You know, I'd much rather be with people who are, are really optimistic and they want to change things and they're revolutionaries and they're fired up. And when you travel throughout Africa, that's usually what you meet. Some of the happiest yeah. people you've ever met and, and really living in the moment, really appreciate it. And they're filled with hope. Uh, so that's why we went there and uh, it, I've never regretted it. It's been a, a tremendous amount of fun and a lot of, a lot of really big challenges to overcome, but we, uh, we go to work every day, pretty passionate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear you say that by 2050, you think that there's a potential chance that Africa would be one of the wealthiest continents around the world. I mean, I, it kind of reminds I, I me. I mean, of that's what McKinsey's saying. You know, that's mm -hmm. what a lot of these research firms are saying. It's not just me thinking about it. I mean, it's just looking at the GDP growth rates, 
the fact that there's a big wealth transfer from the older generations to younger generations, uh, you know, they're having like 1.2 kids per couple in Japan, you know, even less in Korea. Uh, and when you go, when you go around uh, a lot of the developed countries, uh, the, when you look at 30 to 40 years, uh, those population dynamics, Africa is in a better position and really what held people back were systems and knowledge transfer. Well, the internet and massive online courses, they've created a situation where knowledge transfer is super cheap. And systems, if they have better systems, which, you know, they, it's like when Pakistan got phones, they didn't go to copper, they went to 4G. So they're leapfrogging to new systems right. that are intrinsically better than the legacy ones. So they have more competitive systems, a better educated population, a younger population, and a more entrepreneurial population with high GDP growth, plus tons of natural resources and a trillion dollars of Chinese investment already that's coming right. to the They continent. just leapfrogged. So there's nothing to tear down before they need to build back up. Yeah. They're actually starting, in some sense, like a blank slate. It's kind of like, like they actually leapfrogged desktops and they went straight to mobile, right? It wasn't Africa, right. like one of the highest concentration of people that had mobile phones and that kind of allows a lot of, I guess, accessibility. Uh, and it just, yeah, kind of, I guess, I imagine it's going to be similar with cryptocurrency and a lot of other innovations that it's going to be the testing ground for, testing this kind of stuff with different countries around Africa. Yeah. I just tell you, so I was in Zanzibar in Stony town and, and the, the guy who was the bellhop at the hotel I stayed at was a hell of a character, but I kept running into him uh, in, in Zanzibar and he was doing different things. And so, so he was at, he was the bellhop and then we went to the restaurant and he was the waiter and they were selling jewelry on the side of the street. And then he was like driving a Jeep me uh, while calling people running oh, a call he, center. He was doing a different occupation. Yeah, he he had, he, the guy, so I asked him, I was like, how many jobs do you have, man? He's like, I got five jobs, man. <laughs> oh you got to hustle, gosh. man. You got to hustle. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. You know, most that's people, awesome. most people don't work five jobs, but you're like that. That's the way, you know, you got, you got to hustle to survive. Always bet on that guy, yeah. Because he, yeah. You, know, you know, no matter. As I was in Vietnam years ago, and, I, and then Ho Chi Minh, and I remember when it started raining. Immediately on the street corners, everybody was selling umbrellas. I, mm. I, just, I the rain must have just like conjured them or something because I didn't know where the fuck these people came from. But everybody's selling umbrellas, and the rain stops. They're all gone. It's like thirty minutes. It's just wow. there. It's like, and that's an entrepreneurial economy. That's uh, and you always bet on that stuff because those people work harder, faster, smarter. They're they're not encumbered by a philosophy of hopelessness and cynicism they, there's this belief that tomorrow will be a better day than today uh, and uh, you know i have finite time finite resources and i have to make bets i'm going to bet on people who believe that and live that mm. and embody that yeah i mean it, it reminds me almost the opposite i love my country canada but i just hearing stories of someone losing their job but now they're getting two thousand two thousand five hundred dollars a month of unemployment checks so they have multiple boats that they can go back on. Whereas a lot of these nations, if you don't make money, if you don't figure out a way and be resourceful and be creative to put food on the table for your family, like the burn, the, the boats are burned, right? You have nothing right. to go back to. And I, I would imagine those are spurts of not only early adoption, if you were to introduce you know, new innovations, but it's the people that are going to hustle and, and actually make things happen when opportunities like these come. Um, it's, 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 it is, yeah, in some sense, it, it does make sense that you mentioned that. Um, what What are some of the funnest things that you do across Africa? I know you're into falconry, and 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 would love to kind of 
go into a little bit about that, but like, what, what are some of the most promising countries around Africa that you love? And what are some of the funnest things you've done around Africa? Because I think it's just, un, it's not really talked about, you know, no one really talks about like going to Africa for vacation. And even though it is such an up and coming country, it's still relatively unknown. Right. Well, uh, Falcon Tree is more my Mongolian side. So I go to Mongolia from time to time. And the best time to dip, go is during Natam, which is like the whole country gets drunk for three weeks. It's, uh, it's, a, giant, <laughs> okay. it's a giant festival in July. Uh, and, and the Mongolians are, it's like 3 million people and half of them live in one city, Ulaanbaatar, but then the other half are nomads. <laughs> so so really? talk about a tale of two things. And you drive- Where do they go dirt. though? They live in tents and gares. And they live off the land, no, no, no power, no running water. And you know, it's like, it's like 1200 AD, but then they can go into the city. And and I I was in the Gobi desert with a camel herder. And he asked me what I did through a translator. And I said, I am a a cryptocurrency guy. And it's like, you mean like Bitcoin? It's like, how the fuck does this guy know about Bitcoin? He had, he actually owned some, his brother was holding on to it. He's a camel herder in the desert. I was like, wow. How does he even access that? I know it's his brother just holds on to it. And so he heard about it while he's in the city. He's like, buy me some of that. That sounds like a good thing. Uh, you know, so Mongolia is super cool. And eagle hunting there is like really fun. You carry an eagle with you and you you ride a horse and then you throw the eagle and it goes and grabs something and brings it back to you. They raise the eagles with the horses. It's uh, it's wild. Now, in terms of Africa, you, you know, I was in Kenya and the Maasai Mara was so cool. I stayed at Cotter's Lodge and just being able to go on safari and hang out with the Maasai people and, and, and see that tale of two worlds where they have the same culture that they had 500 years ago, the same thought process and mentality, yet they're somewhat integrated into modern society and life. And they can kind of navigate between both of them. Uh, it was like stepping back into the past and it was uh, just an incredible experience. Um, South Africa is really cool too. You know, it's a super modern country. You go to Cape Town, and some of the views there in South Africa are some of the most beautiful you'll ever see in your life. Uh, and very, uh, very cool place. And, and I, I have a bison ranch up in, uh, in uh, Wyoming. It's about 11,000 acres and 500 bison. We sell guided hunts. And so there's a lot of hunters down in South Africa and they, they hunt the water buffalo and I have the American buffalo. So some of my uh-huh. most treasured moments are like sharing you know, pictures of my, my Buffalo versus their Buffalo and so forth. And there's that, that, that rancher culture that uh, South Africa has. And uh, there's a lot of, a lot of mileage you can get out of there. Zanzibar is super cool because it's an Island nation. And, you know, you go there and uh, you can see giant turtles and you go fishing and you just kind of do, I grew up in Hawaii. So it was, it was always nice to like compare my Island to their Island and, you know, so forth. Burundi was a wild trip. Um, uh, Burundi is in kind of a central Africa. It's nearby Rwanda and it's right off of Lake Tanganyika. And uh, it's, it's a strange country because it's one of the poorest in the world. Only two and a half percent have cell phones, uh, mobile phones that are connected to the internet, smartphones, and about only 11% are electrified. So nine out of 10 people don't have electricity. It's the fourth poorest country in the world, depending on how you count it. Yet the people there are so much fun to hang out with. They have these drummers that just follow you around and they, cause I, we met the president of Burundi. And so he sent his mm. personal drummers uh, to hang out with us. And they, they, we got to see all these traditional drum circles and all the costumes and other things that they have. And there was just so much joy there. And, you know, I hang around like Tanganyika and they're like, Hey, be, be careful. The hippopotamuses will come and eat you. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're dangerous animals. They're incredibly <laughs> dangerous animals. Yeah. Those damn hippos, man. And then you go up North, you go to Egypt. Fun like 5,000 yeah. years of history there in Egypt. See the pyramids, see you know, Friti's tomb and Nefertari's tomb, uh, yeah. you know, all, all Karnak and, you know, all the places in Luxor. 
value of the kings and queens. So crazy to to see yeah. all that stuff and it just so much history there. Yeah. That's all one continent. All those things connected together right. in one continent. It's so Africa is a magical place, and uh, you know it's a great place to take a vacation and. Uh, you can learn so much from so many different people. And there's probably more than 2000 languages that are spoken. And there's mm. probably more than 2000 plus cultures uh, that, uh, that are all in one place. Yeah. I mean, you've traveled so much at this point and you're obviously in a very different position in your life. Do you ever get lonely while you're traveling and working and like, you know, you're now leading, everyone's relying on you at this point to, you know, with, with the success of Ada and you're also traveling. I mean, how do you deal with loneliness or do you feel it? Well, I used to, cause it was plane, train, automobile. And, and now I travel with an entourage because, you know, we've gotten to that stage. So I always have people around. There's always cool and interesting things to do. I do miss the family, yeah. you know, go back home, these types of things. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's plenty of ways to stave that off. And y- y- you always have to be making sure that you have new experiences so you just don't do the same thing again and again and again. Like I had a friend, he, he worked for an investment bank in England. So he had to fly from New York to London, New York to London, same hotel, same yeah. office, same experience, same cab, you know, same plane. He even knew the names of the stewardesses on the plane. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like it, that gets old very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an but, environment you know, that you're used to as well. You're comfortable. Yeah. And, and, but for me, I always tried to do new things and, you know, go to new places and, uh, you know, we try to have new experiences and there's unlimited culture out there. So you, you never have to see the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to, you go to Peru, you see the seven color mountain. It's like the craziest thing in the world. And then, you know, it goes down South and you know, all these beautiful vineyards in Chile and then you go East, you go to Patagonia, you know, there's all kinds of things to do and, and meet. And, you know, you, you get to talk to people about their local problems. And there's a common thread usually throughout all of them where people yeah. feel like they're getting screwed by somebody somewhere. And right, you're like, well, right. this blockchain technology, you know, that's going to stop the screwing. You know, we're going to unscrew you. You know, as long as you're selling that, uh, it's, it's a fun time. Yeah, it gives you a sense of purpose and mission, right? Especially when you can feel and communicate with the people on the ground around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, final questions for you, Charles, um, and really respect your time here. I think a lot of people are stuck in terms of what they want to do and what they're on this planet for in some sense, because a lot of them are trying to find themselves and what they're most competent in. I'm curious to know for you personally, what do you feel is the one or two skills that you're world-class at, something that you feel that you're Maybe it's something you've discovered recently or something you've learned at an early age that you're far better than most people at that. And, and how did you go about discovering this for them for, for yourself that could help others discover from themselves? Well, I think what's the key to my success in the cryptocurrency space is my ability to communicate and teach. Uh, you know, I talk about a lot of things and I'm somehow able to uh, talk to people in a way uh, where they just get it. Uh, and so I do AMAs and I do a lot of uh, lectures and I, you know, I taught, I do a lot of presentations. And so taking complex ideas and breaking those ideas down into digestible bite-sized bits and relating them somehow to the audience's needs uh, is really where I've excelled throughout my career. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've led companies. Uh, it's my fourth company and you know, I have 600 people and we're in 60 countries. And obviously we're, we're doing pretty well. 
Uh, we make more than we spend. I mean, that's pretty good as an entrepreneur, especially in technology, but uh, <laughs> yeah, very rare. Yeah. But uh, you, you know, the, the key is the communication component. I think the other side of it is the ability to learn quickly, you know, mm-hmm. neural science, cognitive science, uh, these things, they have all kinds of heuristics and techniques about how to summarize and learn. And uh, if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur or in life in general, you have to develop an attitude of lifelong learning. I read probably two, three hours a day. I'm always learning new things. Like right now I'm taking a course on the history of Charlemagne, just going through what? that. You know, like, How does that help? It's just more of a personal but, curiosity for you. Yeah. Cause every day you have to learn yeah. something new, you know, as I took class on the history of the black death, you know, uh, the, the bubonic plague came to Europe in 1348. You never know when knowledge is helpful, but develop an appetite for learning of cultures and languages and history and events and reading. And if you keep doing that, then you can always draw whatever you're doing back to something, some mm. experience. Like Charlemagne was the uniter of Europe, and uh, he somehow found a way to expand the Frankish Empire to create you know, the, the precursor to the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, he was the first person crowned emperor in 300 years. Well, it's useless knowledge, uh, it seems like, but then every now and then you could relate. Maybe you're in a town that happens to have a historical connection to Charlemagne, and they're very yeah. proud about that. And you just connect with the people about that. Or maybe you can think about, well, how did somebody with bad communication, because remember, there's no internet, no cell phones, no radios, these things manage an empire. What mm. techniques and tools did they use? So if you lose communication with people, you're like, for example, during a civil war, uh, and all the internet gets shut off right. and all these other right. things. How do you communicate with people? Maybe there's a medieval technique that we could use to actually be able to do that. You know, so it's out there, but it might actually become useful. And maybe it's not. Mm. And maybe it just inspires you, you know, uh, family dynamics. He had 19 children, five wives. Think about that. 19 legitimate children, five wives, you know, how, however many illegitimate ones floating around. You know, imagine managing a family tree like that where half of them want to kill you. His young, his oldest son Pepin tried to kill him because <laughs> you know, he so, would become the the ruler. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. and then he ended up trying to divide his empire amongst three of his kids, and uh, two of them died before uh, he died, and so only one got it, Louis. And actually, he had a grandson uh, Bernard that he wanted to take care of, and and uh, three years after he died, his son killed uh, his grandson. You know, so there's like all that stuff in that family tree, like managing this family. So you think of your own family problems. You're like, well, at least it wasn't as bad as Charlemagne's problems, you know? Right, right, right. My family's not trying to kill me, at least I hope. Uh, So, you know, stuff like that. Uh, So lifelong of learning. So learning how to communicate well and learning how to learn quickly uh, and, and developing an attitude where every day you should learn something. Every day you should add something. It enriches you as a person and it, and it gives you the ability to connect to the past in ways that most people don't. I'd say the third thing is, is, and I'm doing this lately, it's not something I did earlier in life, but God, it's helped a lot, is developing an appetite for meditation. And of course, I'm a high-performing guy, so I, I say I can't just meditate. No, I'm not a Zen guy. I'm not going to go live in a monastery for 40 years like Matthew Ricard and do that. I have to do what he's done, but I have to do it in two years or three years. So how do you do that? Well, if you read a great book from Anders Ericsson, it's called Peak. And Anders is a psychologist who studies like the most elite people in the world. And he created this concept called deliberate practice. It's basically, it's your models combined with your practice models combined with your ability to focus, gather feedback and fix. The tighter that gets, the better those models are, the faster you can master a skill. So it's not Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, but it's rather the techniques you use. 
The problem with meditation is that you don't have that feedback thing in the middle. They're like, close your eyes and breathe through your nose and empty your mind. Well, the teacher can't see it. It might as well sell water by the river. You're not doing much for the student. But what if you could look into the brain and you actually see the brain waves and uh, get an understanding of whether you're in a meditative state or not? Then you can use a computer to help you regulate and you could do in a year what people do in a decade. I even have one of those devices right here. Check it out. How much is it? Yeah, I'd love to see it. Is it expensive? No, no, it's a few hundred bucks. This is a Muse headband. It's electroencephalograph. So it actually reads your brainwaves. And what they've done with machine learning is they've actually learned with the headband uh, how, when you're in a meditative state, when you're not. And they actually create a game that you can play to regulate meditation. And this is nothing new. In fact, there's a whole institute called the Neural Meditation Institute that studies this type of stuff. And there's tons of devices like uh, the Neurosity Crown and There's other things like the kernel flow that's coming on the market and so forth. So we're right in the infancy of those brain computer interfaces. But once they're there, you can use them to accelerate training. And what's the benefit? Well, if you can get into like a mindfulness state on command, uh, your productivity could go up by a factor of 500%, 600%. Your stress goes down dramatically. Uh, You don't get PTSD anymore. Depression can go away. It's like pretty amazing what mindfulness-based stress reduction and flow training has been able to achieve. And that is without the proper feedback. So that third thing I'm really digging into and studying is, is neural feedback and uh, neural assisted, uh, you know, device assisted meditation, uh, reading a lot of literature, Eastern literature on Zen and these types of things and trying to translate it into a Western mindset of optimization, not complacency. What, what was that tool well. called that you mentioned? The, the one that you have? Oh, that's called a muse, but uh, M-U-S-E. Okay. Yeah, and, okay. Yeah, and and uh, they uh, they've been around for a while. Uh, yeah, but there's dozens of these devices now hitting the marketplace, and you know, neural meditation is kind of the category of it, where they use devices to basically assist you in meditating. That's fascinating. I have a last question for you, Charles. You you mentioned a lot of the strengths and and kind of the skills that people should develop. How do you think about rounding out your weakness versus what most people also recommend is just doubling down in your strengths. How, how do you balance that? Do you just decide that the strengths will overcome some of the weaknesses or the fires that you may have to deal with later on in your life? Or do you also try to focus on your weakness while developing your strengths? How, how do you balance your strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. So I break it down at HHPG, health, happiness, performance, and growth. And you know, every year you have to say, okay, what am I doing in those categories, each of those categories? And you have riddled within them strengths and weaknesses you know, uh, weaknesses could be weaknesses because you just haven't focused on it. They could be weaknesses because of uh, physical reasons. Uh, you know, you, you could have you know, a debilitating condition that prevents you from doing something. Uh, so uh, in all things, you have to have balance and uh, you always look at your strengths and weaknesses in each of those categories. So for health, for example, uh, you know, there's plenty of things you can do to maximize and optimize that. Uh, but then you always have to balance it out against other things. Like, are you spending enough time working out and exercising? The answer for me is no. That's a huge problem. It's a weakness. I don't work out enough, you know, and I'm not at the right weight. I'm overweight. I'm pudgy. And, and that has huge consequences across everything, not just my health, but my performance and happiness, mm. especially as you get older. So, okay, go fix that. Well, what's the root cause of that? You know, so it's not about, is it a weakness or not? You have to always be asking, what are the root causes of problems? And what are the root causes of strengths? 
you know, and sometimes it's genetic advantages and other times it's lifestyle advantages. Sometimes you just won the lottery with the right parents and they pushed you in the right direction and they created a strength for you, but there's always a root cause. And so before you look at strength and weaknesses, get very good at root cause analysis and then just kind of break it down in different areas, whether it's health or happiness or your performance or your growth. How do you do that for yourself? Like getting to the root cause, let's say for working out or happiness, like how do you identify? You just ask questions and be more self-aware. Yeah. So having mentors and having domain experts that you can talk to uh, really helps you here Uh, because what you do is you, you can write all the symptoms down and you can write all the facts and circumstances down in the history. And then you can either do some pattern analysis and try to see if you can find it, or you can just take it to an expert say, this is what's going on. What do you know? And the odds are that you actually know the root cause performance psychology is a great area for that. The, you know, it's, it, normally we think about it as oh, it's a sports guy and, he, and he's there to help you like win the football game or something like that. But it's actually a domain of psychology and they don't just look at sports. They also look at overall human performance and they talk about how do you set smart goals? How do you find the root cause of these things? And there's plenty of therapeutic interventions they have, whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy or, or other such things. And, and they can help you build the right mental mindset to get to root and then decide what's truly a weakness, what's not, and start resolving and and fixing things. The other thing is that when you fix things, they have to be iterative. People are very bad at setting goals. They tend to send goals that are not achievable. Uh, You know, they want to go too far. Like if you want to learn a language, don't say, I'm going to go learn perfect fluency Arabic or Korean or Chinese in one year. It's just Mm -hmm. not going to happen. You know, it's especially if you come from a romance language, you come from a Western language, it's just too far out. Now, if you're Japanese going to Korea, you probably could learn that in a year because they're, they're, they're somewhat similar when you actually look at the underlying concepts, but it's still challenging. And even if you go from Spanish to Italian, there's, there's nuances there that may take a little longer, but you can set smart goals and you can break it into bite-sized achievable packages and have the right collection of things. And you can gradually learn your way there, earn your way there. And then as long as you get, uh, you know, you, you cheap things, you're moving in the right direction and inspires and motivates you to move forward. Uh, getting really good at habit formation, understanding how habits are formed, and also getting really good at the science of motivation and willpower, super important for working on your strengths and your weaknesses. Uh, if you don't have the right motivation base and you don't have the right ability to habitualize the behaviors that you need to move forward, you're never going to get anywhere in your life. You'll give up way too quickly. So that's the mindset component of it. And again, it goes back to that performance psychology. That's the, the heart of that field is trying to figure out how do you motivate people? How do you set achievable smart goals? You know, these types of things. And, uh, and also an- analyze what is the root cause of a weakness or the root cause of a strength. And what do you need to do to overcome that? And then goalposts, you know, not everybody's a concert pianist, but maybe you want to learn enough to you know, be impressive at a party, you know, these types of things. the world of difference to get there versus playing perfect Chopin ballet, you know, at, on a Steinway at Carnegie Hall. It's a world of difference. The, the level of expertise you have to accumulate. Well, you notice there's a lot of things in life. There's a Pareto principle where you can get just good enough that you're having fun and really enjoying it. But if you want to get beyond that and become elite, you then have to invest thousands of hours of effort. So golf is a great example of that. If you put two, 300 hours of deliberate practice in with the right teachers, 
you can get to a point where you can play golf reasonably well with a reasonable handicap and have a lot of fun out at the golf course and feel like you know what you're doing. You want to go play for the PGA, you're probably putting 30,000 hours uh, you know, or more into that to, to get to that point. And you have to overcome all kinds of things and spend eight hours a day doing conditioning and this and that and mindset stuff. And are you going to really get that much more happiness to be at that level of golf, especially if you're playing golf with people who are amateurs? Uh, you know, is kicking their ass like by a 10x, you know, yeah. really that much more desirable? It's like playing chess against kids. You know, how much fun are you going to have there? You know, at least keep yeah. it somewhat competitive. So I think that's the other side of working on strengths and weaknesses is that people aren't so good at bounding and people aren't so good at setting the definition of success. Uh, you know, and you have to have specific, measurable, achievable, uh, relatable and uh, time-driven goals, smart goals in order to, uh, to, to get there and the right goalposts in order to, uh, to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And for, you mentioned Pareto principle for people that don't know, it just means that 80% of your results come from 24% of your inputs and, and efforts. Um, but that's fascinating and, and really good advice, Charles. I, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I know we went a little bit over her, but I, uh, I really appreciate it. And a lot of insights that I'm sure people in the audience listening are, are going to appreciate. So um, we'll really love to learn a little bit more about, you know, where people can find you online. Uh, I don't know if you even care about that. Oh, but yeah, put, put a link to my, uh, my Twitter account. That's probably the easiest way. Let's get, to you, let's get you to a mill. That's seven, yeah. seven figure amount, right? Yeah. Well, I appreciate everyone. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, definitely check out Charles and we're going to link down all of the things that we mentioned uh, in the episode below. So please check it out. And thank you again for tuning in. Thank you so much, Kim. Take care. 